And so would you join us in welcoming Darren Tyler, who's leading the discussion, along with Rod Dreher. Welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, I'm excited because I've realized that I've given away more copies of Rod's book than my own. Um, I stumbled into this, uh, and I don't even know if you know this, but September 29th of 2020 was when uh, this book, Live Not My Lies, released. Uh, so two years ago, like this month, for us, and so... Uh, I'll say this, and then I'm going to ask you a question about it, but March of 2020 was the first time I'm thinking, I'm kind of looking around the country going, this isn't the country I thought I, I lived in. And I, was, I went back and was reading Bonhoeffer, and you know, I was reading Barth, and like, what is it we're supposed to do? And then your book comes along and sort of synthesizes all of those things. I wish you'd have released it earlier, is what I'm being honest with, but... What, what was it that made it that moment in time? Because did you guys actually rush the release of it? No, we didn't. Um, the way book publishing works, they had to have the final manuscript in uh, by mid-March of that year. I could not do anything else to it at all. So there's, um, I, I think there might be a, maybe a mention of COVID, but we didn't know how bad it was gonna get, what was gonna happen. And of course the George Floyd thing came the next month. So by the time the book was published in September, um, people were ready for it. And I think that's one reason why the book has done so well. I, and I couldn't have planned for that. Uh, with, when you're publishing a book, it's like trying to pilot a super tanker. You yeah. know, you can't, you can't uh, uh, anticipate these things. Yeah, so I don't know if, uh, if Catholics believe in the Holy Spirit doing, doing stuff, but like, that felt like a Holy Spirit moment for me. Like it was for such a time as this, you thought you were just writing a book, but you were actually literally giving us a field guide for like where we are as a country. And one of the things um, that, that I was struck by with it is you, sort, you started defining totalitarianism, which is not a word that I had ever used ever in regards to our country. Mm -hmm. But maybe we start with you defining what that is before we go any further so we know what we're talking about. Yeah, it is a weird word to use for the United States. When we hear the word totalitarianism, we always think of Stalin and gulags and you know, bread lines, secret police. We don't have any of that here. So how does this word even work uh, for America? But if you go back and study the history of the term, it was invented by Mussolini in the 20s to describe a government, a form of government in which all the power was, uh, was, was uh, concentrated within one ruling party, uh, which is authoritarianism, but all of life is politicized, and that's what makes it totalitarian. It's like an expansion of authoritarianism. And uh, so you're still wondering, what does that have to do with America today? Because we don't have a one-party state. That's what's so interesting about this form of totalitarianism that is emerging in America. Because you don't need a one-party state when every institution in your society, from the media to academia, woke capitalism, big business, um, law, medicine, when everybody is on the same ideological page and they won't let any dissenting opinion, they won't give it any space to breathe, 
that is a softer form of mm. the same thing. And this is what the people who came to me, started coming to me in 2014, who, who came to this country from the communist world, they were starting to see it happen, but they couldn't understand it either because this is supposed to be the land of the free. So why does it feel unfree, like what we left behind? So 2014 was the year that I remember seeing an interview with Jerry Seinfeld and Chris Rock. And them saying that they no longer will play colleges because it's just too dangerous. And I'm thinking, the world are they even talking about? So that was like my first glimpse, but then I kind of got back to my life again. But realizing that there was something happening even then that the vast majority, what was it that made, was there something specific that made those kinds of folks that were coming here that they saw then that none of us saw? It started out with exactly that, with the fear of what you have, what, what you say, that you could say the quote unquote wrong thing and it could cost you your job, your livelihood, your business. Uh, that was the first, that was the canary in the coal mine that, that triggered these people. But then they began to see other things too, like it became impossible to have your own opinion and to work in certain fields. Over and over these things would happen. And even if these people who came to America from the communist world, if they couldn't articulate exactly what it was they were seeing, it was the atmosphere, the feeling in the mm -hmm. air. They, they knew in their bones what was happening. I talked to a man uh, in Slovakia, a Catholic priest there, who said, in some ways, this is even more difficult than communism because under communism, the gospel shone a clear light through the darkness, but now the light of the gospel hits only fog. Wow, wow. Was that when Benedict Option came? Benedict Option published in, I published that in 2017, but I've been writing about it for at least 10 years. Okay. And uh, it's based on, uh, the two are actually a lot of, they work in tandem. Benedict Option is how to live faithfully in a post-Christian society. Live Not By Lies is also about that, but it's a lot more urgent. It's about how to live at a time of active persecution. Which is, I think that, so I read Benedict Option maybe when it first came out, and, uh, and, I, and I did not think at all that you were overreacting. <laughs> a lot of people did, though. Yeah, and that's because they'd not been to Morocco Right, or other totalitarian countries. And I had this weird experience in that we spent an enormous amount of time in, in countries doing the gospel mission in totalitarian regimes. But I still didn't have the language or even, to be honest with you, the idea that it could even happen in our culture because I was watching the government and I wasn't watching our media. I wasn't watching big tech companies. Mm -hmm. I wasn't watching the universities. Like, it seems like, am I right that it seems like it's sort of crept in from multiple places at the same time? Yeah, you're right, and the, the U.S. military now. Yeah. I have people uh, who are in the military or who recently left the military who say they will not let their children, if they have anything to, any say over it, join the military because they say it's not what it was when, when we joined. You know, it's all become woke. And uh, I think one thing too, Darren, that it's so hard for people to understand, because when, when they think of totalitarianism, we think of uh, Orwell's 1984, right? Where yeah. the government used fear and terror and pain to compel people to obey. We don't have that now, so how can it be totalitarian? People need to read Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. That's what we're dealing with. It was also about a totalitarianism, but it's one based on comfort and consent. In that dystopia, 
everybody wants to surrender their freedom because they're taken care of, they're entertained with pornography, with drugs that make them feel pleasurable, lots of sex, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, when the savage, John the Savage, the dissenter, is brought before Mustafa Mond, who is like the world controller for Europe, Mustafa Mond doesn't torture him. He says, why wouldn't you want to be part of this? He calls it Christianity without tears. And John mm. the Savage, the basis of his dissent is, he said, you have to suffer, be willing to suffer to be authentically human. Which is the Achilles heel of our culture precisely right now. And this, let me tell you a story. I think this is in the book. When I was in Budapest doing research for this book, my translator was a young Hungarian Christian uh, wife and mom. She told me, uh, Rod, I find it so difficult to talk to even my Christian friends about the struggles I have in my marriage and being a mom. Because as soon as I tell them, um, my husband and I have been arguing lately. They say, oh, get a divorce. Put your son in daycare. Go back to the office. You got to be happy. She said, I tell them, wait a minute. I am happy. I'm happily married. I'm happy being a mom. But being happy doesn't mean that you ha don't have any struggles. She said, they don't understand why anybody should struggle. I looked at her and said, Anna, it sounds like you are fighting for your right to be unhappy. She said, that's it, where'd you get that? Chapter 17, Brave New World. Oh. To be fully human and to be a Christian, you have to fight for your right to be unhappy. Which in your book, you refer to this idea of moral therapeutic deism. Am I getting that right? The Moralistic therapeutic deism. Deism, yeah. and it is defined as that God wants me to just be happy and comfortable. And nice. And nice, yeah, yep. that's right. Yep. Yeah. This, <laughs> the, there are, this is a concept, moralistic therapeutic deism, coined by Professor Christian Smith at the University of Notre Dame. He's one of the top sociologists of religion in the US. And he said that based on his extensive study of the spirituality of young Americans, he said the de facto religion of Americans, no matter what their faith tradition, is moralistic therapeutic deism, which believes a few basic things. God exists, he wants us to be happy, he wants us to be nice, we only have to call on him when we need something, and only a few people like Hitler go to hell. And that's it. Mm -hmm. But that's, whatever, uh, whatever else it might be, that, that ain't biblical religion. But that's what Christianity has been hollowed out into. And this is, no kind, this is not a religion that is going to survive persecution. It, it isn't, and when I look back into, you see you didn't grow up in any sort of an evangelical environment at uh, all. No, 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 I became a Christian uh, in my 20s, I became a Catholic, and then in 2006 I became Eastern Orthodox. So I don't know evangelicalism. Right, so let me, I'm gonna give, you probably know most of this because I'm sure you've been tweeted by most of them, but um, it, it, there was a season in the early to mid 80s where we made this sort of decision collectively that the best way to quote, reach more people is to create a very uh, like just sterile environment on a, on a Sunday gathering. The Sunday gathering became about uh, quote, reaching people, which meant not saying anything that might offend anybody because we wouldn't reach them, which, over the years created an entire generation of biblically illiterate young men and women, not their fault, that then became this idea that, that, which I'd never heard that phrase before, that if I say something that makes somebody mad, even if it's true, I shouldn't say it, because Jesus wouldn't 
do that. The, you know, the Jesus that I serve would never say something like that. And it's, and it's resulted in this world right now, especially in Christianity, where uh, people are afraid to say things that are true. So for instance, uh, the bar is so low right now that if I say on a Sunday morning that a man cannot have a baby, that is not a controversial statement. And I'll get an email, that is so brave. You're kidding. You're, that is so courageous. And, I'm, and, and here's the thing, I, I understand what they mean by that, like I'm not insulted by it, but it's just that the, the bar has become so low, and maybe, this is, maybe that's the wrong way of saying it, there's such a drought for truth that people are so thirsty for truth that just a drop of truth is inspiring to people in, in, inside and outside of the church. You know, that, that reminds me of uh, a famous story that Václav Havel, who was the first president of a free Czechoslovakia, uh, but he was the leader of the, the dissident movement there, uh, a playwright, not a Christian. But he wrote a, a famous essay in 1977 called The Power of the Powerless. And inside that essay, he told the parable he invented himself of the greengrocer. He said, imagine a greengrocer in a communist city who, like every other business owner in town, has a sign he hangs in the window that says, workers of the world unite, the Marxist slogan. Nobody believes it, but everybody hangs it there because they, they want to avoid trouble. They, they conform. What happens, said Havel, when the greengrocer takes the sign down one day and puts it away? Well, the secret police come. They arrest him. They confiscate his business. He has to go uh, be a janitor for a living. His family loses opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. He's pushed to the margins of society. He loses something significant. But what, said Havel, has he gained? Well, first of all, he's gained his self-respect, but he has also shown everyone who sees what happens that it is possible to live in truth if you're willing to suffer for it. And that, said Havel, in time, will signal to everybody that this whole system that's built on lies, it will fall if enough people have the courage to live in truth and accept suffering. And somebody's gotta go first. Somebody's gotta go first, and that's the difficult thing. Mm -hmm. But when I was in Moscow, I interviewed this man, Yuri Sipko, a Russian Baptist pastor. And you wanna talk about people who are persecuted? Russian Baptists. They were persecuted by my own people, the Orthodox, as well as by the Communists. Uh, Pastor Sipko is quite old now. But he led the Russian Baptists for many years. As a child growing up in Siberia, all, Stalin arrested all the Baptist men and sent them to the camps. Uh, the women had to keep the church alive, and they did. But uh, Pastor Sipko told me when we got ready to leave, we had been talking for a couple of hours. We were standing on a street corner early November in Moscow. It's starting to snow. He looked at me and said, go home to America and tell the church that if they're not prepared to suffer for the sake of the faith, they're not gonna make it. He said, they're not worthy of Christ. And, um, and this was a man who knew what it meant to suffer. And he said, there can be no compromise. And you know what he even told me? He said, we're thinking about, we're talking now in evangelical circles in Russia about going back to how we used to live under communism, uh, those tight communities, because they can see with their children under capitalism that the kids are losing the faith. I'll say this, as a guy that has traveled to some horrible places, um, 
I, d I used to feel a, a real pity for the children that were there, and I, and I do for many reasons still, because they don't have access to medical care. But one, one thing they have that our children do not have, that I feel pity for our children, is that tightness of a relationship that you can only get when you, your life depends on this person's life. Like you, they were so interconnected with each other that they, they're poor financially, but they are rich in relationship. And it has helped to sustain their faith in a way that we could learn from. And that I pray we don't need to have to go to that extreme to learn this. I don't think that we have to do that. But you can see it firsthand that they may not have you know, the next uh, iPhone, whatever's coming out this week, but man, they've got each other and they've got Jesus. And that is enough in their world. And it, I'll say this, it causes them a courage. There's just a courage that we've seen. And some of y'all in this room have been with me to these places. You know, if you go to North Africa, they're living in a way, like, so they would see this statistic here that, you know, uh, in, in our culture right now, there's a statistic that's out that is, the amount of people that are, will not speak what they really believe because they're afraid of the, the, the retaliation against them. But deep and buried into that poll is it's actually mostly conservatives that are afraid. And they're afraid because they're the ones that face the consequences. They're the green grocer. Right. 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 And so, but because they have something to lose, it's... It, there's a little bit of that in, let's say, Haiti, for instance, where it's really dangerous right now. They don't have anything to lose, so it's a little bit easier for them maybe to be courageous. But the fact is, is we have everything to lose because we're just kicking the can down the road. We're putting it in a place where this is uh, this new political divide, and because this is a legacy media piece, you'll see that it looks like that. You know, half of college students wouldn't room with someone who doesn't believe like they believe. But you know, like a classic. Legacy media right now, they buried the lead, and the lead is that 70%, when you divide it by conservative versus progressive, 70% of progressives will not uh, have a roommate that doesn't believe like they believe. And, so, and these are the ones who are at the top of every institution. Yes. So they're the ones that, uh, and, and, they, and by the way, that poll before, like 77% of the progressives are willing to say what they believe because there are no consequences in, in, in their world. But it puts us now in a place where as, as Jesus people, I mean, I'd say, so the last year, you know, so you get Bill Maher, uh, or, or you get uh, Jordan Peterson, you've got literally like an atheist comedian and an agnostic professor from Toronto that have more courage than many pastors in our country. And I'm like, how on earth did we come to this where they're the ones that are taking the bullets for truth? And look, we have to stand with those people. One yes. of the most important things I learned in doing this research was that whenever you find allies who are brave enough to stand up against this, you have to cling to them. This woman, Camilla Bendova, she and her late husband, Václav Benda, were the only Christians in the inner circle of Václav Havel and the other dissidents in Czechoslovakia. And I, I asked her, when I was in her apartment, I said, Camilla, you and your husband are very strict Catholics and conser political conservatives. All these people you were with, Havel and the others, they were all hippies who had very adventurous, romantic lives, euphemizing that. I said, was that difficult for you and your husband? She said, no, not at all, Rod. She, goes, she said, the thing you have to understand is when you're facing down totalitarianism, the rarest quality to find in anybody is courage. They had it. Most Christians in this country, she said, kept their heads down and their mouths shut 
just to go along to get along. She said, my husband and I as Christians knew we could not do that, and we knew that we had to stand with others who had courage, even if they didn't share our faith or even our politics. Hmm. Well, I had that in mind when, when Live Not By Lies was first published. One of the first people to pick it up and champion it was Barry Weiss. Barry Weiss is Great a name. Some, journalist. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, she was a, a young, secular Jewish lesbian of the center left who quit her job at the New York Times. She was at the pinnacle of journalism. Uh, on the editorial page of the New York Times, she quit because she got sick and tired of the lies that they told there. Um, also, Brett Weinstein and his wife, Heather Hying, left-wing atheists from Evergreen College in Washington who were driven out because they refused to, to uh, bow down to wokeness. They've spent the whole, their whole show reading from that book. These are left-wing people, yes. but they know that on these important issues, we're on the same side. Yeah, and I would add to that list uh, Glenn Greenwald. Um, openly gay journalist broke the uh, Snowden story, was given a Pulitzer Prize, and then suddenly canceled as transphobic and homophobic and because he didn't play by the rules. Yeah. Uh, Alex Berenson, which many people in this room would know, uh, fired from the New York Times. I, I'm a news junkie. Like I was probably the weirdest kid in school but didn't know it, but I would literally I'd wake up and watch CNN every morning like in fifth grade. I know. <laughs> Pray for my wife, but um, and I was—I mean, I was literally subscribing to the Wall Street Journal when I was 20 years old, and in the last two years, have canceled all of those and subscribed directly to. Which this is something that gives me hope, quite honestly, because there are journalists out there, Barry Weiss being one, Glenn Greenwald being another, Matt Taibbi being another. Yeah, that are they—they they would literally think that I'm nuts because I believe in Jesus. They would—they would be angry that I'm where my position on abortion is. Right? They would be furious on those things, but on these major issues of truth, uh, and, and it says a lot that as far as the culture itself, if they're willing to cancel them for the ideology, they're certainly not gonna go easy on us. Yeah. Well, here's another reason it's important to keep, make those allies and stand by them. Earlier this year, I was at a conference in Budapest where uh, a guy named Eric Kaufman, who's a political science professor at Birkbeck College in London, Coffin presented his research on the political views of Americans under the age of 30, American adults under the age of 30. And he was talking to an audience of, of uh, conservatives, Eric Kaufman. He said, conservatives have got to fight the culture war above any other issue. Why? Because his research into the political opinions of the, the coming generation shows that they have, uh, most of them have no respect at all for traditional liberties free speech, freedom of religion, freedom of association. All of these things the young generation sees as license to abuse the marginalized. Hmm. You know, so we are not gonna have these liberties if we have a majority of people in this country who think they're harmful. Yeah, we get what Oz Guinness calls the government we deserve. If yeah, we, yeah, yeah. And the difference, by the way, I mean, I, know, and I, I don't know if anybody in this room or maybe watching online, I haven't seen the comment section, um, you, you, there's people that would say, well, you know, we shouldn't get involved in politics because Jesus didn't get involved in politics. And uh, it's, it, it's at best a stretch. I mean, someone told me once you can torture the Bible long enough, you, it's like a man, you can make it say whatever you want. But Daniel, Daniel, right, was, he, he, he wasn't a Jewish nationalist, right? He worked in Nebuchadnezzar, he was working in the city for the betterment 
as a follower of God, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they were, they were working in the, the city and the government for the betterment of it. There was a cost to them, right? There was a suffering for their truth, but they didn't just sit back and watch it unfold. We have an opportunity because we have a representative government and it's totally different than my brothers and sisters in Morocco. It literally doesn't occur to them to participate in an election because there aren't any. Mm. Right? They don't vote in that way. And by the way, like if you're wondering, because we could keep this really ethereal and, and you know, as far as other places, and, but this is actually, I, I want to share this because this is actually happening right here in our community. There's a, a young uh, family, a young boy who, uh, third grade, feels like he's a girl. And this, uh, uh, the family is now suing our school system to say uh, that, because uh, the school system has offered them to use a bathroom of, uh, like a private bathroom, but it's not good enough for the family. The family wants the no, little boy. You must, you must conform. Yeah. You must affirm and conform. And, and here's what's interesting. When you read this piece, first of all, the, the ideology that we all have to believe now is that they have to, this writer of this piece, there's an editor somewhere that says you have to say that that's a girl. It's she, she, she. And then they're quoting a guy in the article named Will French, who's the chair of the GLSEN Tennessee chapter. Organ, uh, he educates youth about LGBTQ plus community. Uh, one of the uh, interviews he talks about um, uh, that if by five years old, a child is already questioning their gender and it should be in, encouraged. Uh, there's quotes from this guy that you should be allowing surgeries and medical interventions at that age. And not a single piece that I read in any one of the local newspapers or local news mentioned the fact that this guy's real job is a counselor, a school counselor for Nashville Metro School Systems in our town. So he actually has the ears of children that he's counseling with in our, so it's like well, that's in our city, in our community. Yeah. People Darren think that it can't happen here. Solzhenitsyn, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great Soviet, anti-Soviet dissident, said in the Gulag Archipelago, he said, around the world, people look at what happened in Russia and said, it can't happen here. With us, it would never be that way. In fact, said Solzhenitsyn, what happened in my country could happen in any country on earth under the right conditions. In a similar way, you might be thinking, I'm sitting here in Middle Tennessee, fairly conservative around here. You know, these sort of things happen in San Francisco, in Los Angeles, in Boston, in New York. No, no, no. They happen right here. And the complacency of so many of us uh, Christians, conservatives, thinking that this is only something that happens there is how it advances. Wherever you have social media, it's going to happen. I'll tell you a story. In Poland, when I was in Poland researching this book, I kept hearing from young Christians in their 20s that this country, Poland, is going to go the same way of Ireland in 10 years. In Ireland, the Christian faith totally collapsed almost overnight. This was so hard for me to understand. I grew up in the era of Pope John Paul II. I mean, Poland was this fortress of faith. Right. Nope. It's all coming apart, and it's coming apart because the young people are being catechized, so to speak, by social media. I talked to a high school teacher there who said there is no institution in our country, not family, not the church, not the state, certainly, that is more powerful than TikTok in teaching young people how the world works. 
this is not something you can, that, that stops at borders. It doesn't stop at the border of Tennessee. It doesn't stop at the border of Poland. It is everywhere. And the longer we allow ourselves to think that this is something that happens somewhere else, and the longer we depend on the media to tell us what's happening, yes. we stay in the dark. I, um, it's incredible to me the sort of things that are actually happening around the transgender issue in this country. That is a great issue for, for Live Not By Lies, transgenderism. If you follow on Twitter Chris Rufo or yes. Libs, Libs of TikTok, a few other accounts, you'll find the things that children's hospitals are doing. They're doing gender-affirming hysterectomies on uh, little girls, on, or girls right. 13, 14 years old. They're, they're removing the breast of girls. They're castrating little boys. And when they point out, when Chris Rufo and others have pointed out, you're doing this. Matt Walsh has done this too, pointed out you're doing this. They lie about it. And the media propagate these lies. It's unbelievable. You think, how can this be happening here? Where are the, are the politicians, the Republican politicians and others who are saying, no, this is America, you can't do that. And may I point out that a lot of school systems have policies in place that glisten, the GLSEN, that glisten wrote for them, forbidding teachers and school staff from telling parents if their child presents as trans at school during the day. In Maryland, some parents sued the school board. A federal judge ruled that the school is within its rights to do that. Wow. Yeah, and when you talk about Soviet, in the Soviet Union, in the early, the early Bolsheviks published articles saying that now after the revolution, we the state will take over parenting from you parents. You've got it easy now, just focus on your jobs. We're gonna raise your kids for you. And you think that can never happen here. The state can never uh, put itself between me and my kids. Guess what, it is. The state of Ohio right now, uh, you cannot look at your child's medical records if they're 12 years old and older without their permission. Now, Ohio. Why would they do that? Why would they do that? They would do, they're doing that so they can get in the heads of these kids, so the Will Frenches of the world can get in the heads of these kids and convince these kids that they aren't who, what their body says they are. Yeah. And the thing that, I guess for me that, I, I mean, I spend a lot of time reading. I, I spent a lot of time on planes, so I have a lot of time to read, but I sort of live with this sense of, why isn't everybody angry about this? Why isn't everybody... And, and then I began to realize in the last year that not everybody actually knows about it because not everybody is as boring as I am. Like people actually have lives like where they're living and feeding their families and I'm sitting around reading, but it, it is time to, sorry, I'm sorry, Shannon. <laughs> I know you had, a, you had a better marriage in mind than that, but. but Bless his heart. She's, one thing she's taught me, one of the greatest gifts she's ever given me was just because you think it's fascinating doesn't mean it is. Well, look, Darren, I, I can tell you that most ordinary people don't care about this stuff, but the progressive activists care about it more than anything else. This is their religion. Right. And so do you think they don't care about it or they don't know about it? Because I'm not sure of the answer to that. Because if they do know about it and they don't care about it, that kind of ticks me off. Right, right. I think a lot of, I think it can, be, it can be both at the same time. I think a lot of people don't wanna know about it because it means they would have to get active. I remember talking to a pastor once uh, in a small church and I asked him just, 
you know, this is what I do for a living. I said, how are you preparing your congregation for how to deal with this gender identity, gender ideology? He said, oh, no, 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 we don't have politics in the church. I said, wait a minute, I, I, I fully support you not wanting politics in the yep. church, but this isn't politics. This is Christian living, and this is a direct attack on families. It's a human rights issue. Of course, of course. And he said, well, I, I think that if, if we just keep saying our prayers and keep coming to church, everything's going to be fine. And I realized as I was listening to this guy talk that he was scared. He's a pastor who's scared to talk about it because he doesn't want to get pushback from his people. I thought, the, and I talked earlier, I was visiting that parish that weekend, that church, and I, the reason I asked the pastor this was somebody in the congregation recognized me and asked me, what do we do about gender ideology? And I couldn't believe that they weren't being told about it. But after that, I kind of suspected that maybe a lot of pastors just don't want to talk about it. They want to to be nice because so many of us Christians expect our pastors to be nice and uplifting and only give us inspirational things. (laughs) How's that working out for you, Conduit? (laughs) Well, I mean, mean, look, how many people here... How many people here have seen the film A Hidden Life? It came out a couple of years ago yeah. by Terrence Malick. Yeah. It's based on the true story of a man named Franz Jägerstädter. He was an Austrian farmer, lived up in the Alps, Catholic, lived in a little Catholic village. Everybody went to church in the village. When the Nazis came along, everybody in the village joined the Nazi party except Franz and his family. He said, we can't do that. We're Christians. Franz got persecuted. He was eventually killed by the Nazis. He died in prison because he refused as a Christian to sign an oath of allegiance to Hitler. Now, you have to, you look at that film and you wonder, what was it that made Franz, alone of all the Catholic men in that village, realize that he could not sign the oath to Hitler and be a follower of Christ? It was the way he lived before he was put to the test. There's a scene in that film, and this was taken straight from Kierkegaard, uh, in which Franz goes to the church, he sees an artist painting on the wall, scenes from the Bible on the wall of the church. And the artist says, you know, a lot of people come here to look at these uh, images from the Bible, and they admire Jesus. But Jesus didn't call admirers, he called disciples. And you can only tell the difference between an admirer and a disciple when it comes time to suffer. That's a lesson that every pastor in this country ought to be hammering into the heads of their congregations, because this is coming. John John 2, um, verses 22, 23, at the very end of that, uh, Jesus had just turned over the temple tables, but the, the last two verses of that chapter uh, everybody, so a lot of people were like really excited that he was there, but it says that he did not entrust himself to them, the crowd, because he knew what was in the heart of every man. And the idea being that the crowd could get really excited, and we saw that, of course, the way his life played out. The crowd was excited for him. One week crucified him, the next week. But it was the excitement of the moment was not going to be enough to carry them, and so he didn't entrust himself to them in that early part of his ministry because he knew what was in them, which was not their willingness to suffer. They were excited about the miracles at that point, but they had not yet become excited about him and become a follower of him. And the look, it doesn't sound great on, on most televangelists, but it's like suffering was part of the program. 
Yeah. Like it wasn't an interruption of our work. It right. is our work. It is our work. And if, you, if you're not, as uh, Pastor Sipko told me, if you're not prepared to suffer, what does your faith mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I tell in the book a story at the very end about a young man, such an impressive young man, Timo Krishka. He's a Slovak photographer who was a toddler when communism ended. His grandfather um, had been a pastor and was persecuted by the communists. And to honor the memory of his grandfather, he wanted to go out and interview elderly people who had been imprisoned under communism and tortured for their faith. So he went out around the country to take their pictures and to interview them. Many of these people, these men and women, they never recovered. They lived in poverty all their lives. But Timo said the more of them he met, the more he saw the deep joy they had. And some of them even told him that they were, there was no point in their lives that they were happier than when they were in prison because all they had was Christ. Yeah. And Timo said it made me, as someone who was raised or who grew up in freedom and who had so much more money and privilege and the freedom to travel than my parents had, it made me realize how impoverished I was that these people, my grandparents' generation, who had nothing and they didn't even have freedom to go leave their prison cells, but they had God and that was something that he said, I, I needed more of that in my life. So that changed me. Hmm. You know, of course, my prayer, my hope, and honestly, my belief is that we don't have to, our country doesn't have to fall to this for us to be good Christians. What I love, one of the things Jesus said when he talked about uh, a rich man in the kingdom of God, he said it was impossible uh, to enter the kingdom of God if you're a rich man. But then that very next verse, he says, but with God, all things are possible. So it wasn't that it was a sin, it's just dangerous, right? And so there is a way to follow Jesus and, and not have to have our country fall. And I believe that we have a voice at the table here to, to make a difference. And, and there's a part of me, like our, our church participates in global mission, we don't just go in and, 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 and hand out tracts or do, or do little skits or, or stuff, but we'll, we partner with a church in a local village. We bring clean water, we bring a well, we bring healthcare, we bring a school, we bring a pastor and a church that's all been, and the community actually transforms witch doctors go out of business because the, the mamas are not taking their chickens to the witch doctors anymore because they don't believe in it. You know, the, the community transforms and I'm, Looking back in our culture, going okay, what is the what are the clean water issues of our culture? You know, and it's it's emotional health, it's mental health, but it's these ideas right here are where we've got to figure out how we're going to drill the clean water wells of truth into our culture because mm -hmm. our kids are uh, dying of thirst for truth. Our we're all dying of thirst for for truth so much so that I say a man can't have a baby, and that seems courageous, yeah, because they're starving for truth. You know. Uh I did a whole chapter in there about family and the importance of family and building resilient Christians. And the chapter is mostly about the Benda family in Prague. Camilla and Václav Benda had five or six kids and they raised them under communism, but um, they knew that they could not shield their children from the horror going on around them and they didn't want to. They wanted their kids to know what was happening in the world, but also to know that Christ has overcome it and Christ would overcome it through them, but they might have to suffer. So one of the things they would do, like Václav, the father, they, he was a mathematician. 
He, when the kids would come home from school, he would sit down with them and ask them, what did you learn today? And he would help them discern truth from lies. Camilla, the mom, made it her business to read to the kids every day for two, sometimes three hours, even though she was a college professor too. And even though she was trying to take care of the kids uh, for four years when her husband was in jail as a political prisoner, I asked her in her apartment in Prague, Camilla, what did you read to them? And she's, we're standing in this apartment, 14-foot ceilings, floor-to-ceiling bookshelves all around, Eastern European intellectuals. She said, well, I read to them myths, like the classic myths. I read to them the classics of Western literature, and I read a lot of Tolkien to them. I said, Tolkien? Why Tolkien? She looked at me in the eye and said, because we knew that Mordor was real. And I realized the genius of what this woman had done for her kids. These kids could not understand communism or Marxism or what was really happening, but they could understand the story of the Lord of the Rings. They could understand that the people, the men and women who would gather in their parents' apartment to talk about freedom and resisting the government, these were like the fellowship of the ring. And Camilla was giving them, feeding their imaginations, their young imaginations with the story, stories of the good, the true, and the beautiful. Because you can't just tell people what's wrong with the world, you gotta show them what's right with the world too. Yes. To this day, uh, the kids are all grown up now and have kids of their own. Even though the Czech Republic is behind France, the most atheist country in Europe, all of the kids and all of the grandkids are still active churchgoers. But it started with that family. Which is a hopeful thing for us as parents. I mean, we've, my wife and I have raised four kids in, in Middle Tennessee, one of the places that seems to be one of the safest on the planet, right, to, to raise a, a child in. Um, and, and this literally just came out like this week, which was these new policies coming into the University of Tennessee. Uh, so, you know, in this room, there's a lot of people that bleed orange, right? There's, a, you know, people that love our beloved University of Tennessee. They're literally across the state enacting in their, in their curriculum right now uh, policies that are 100% designed to uh, and it's like you know, like you would think it would be. It's about act, you know, inclusion, and but inclusion includes gender. It includes genders on a spectrum now that uh, male and female isn't. And so, if for instance, if you want to be uh, to go through a counseling program and to become a therapist coming through there, and by the way, this is happening in Christian universities as well, Grand Canyon University, Trevecca University, in our own backyard, to be able to keep the APA accreditation for their people graduating, they're having to teach them what APA would agree with, which is that if you've got a young person coming in and they're questioning their gender, that you should encourage them to search the gender in it. In our universities, Christian universities, it's like, you know what I love, I mean, the, the student loan problem is a like ginormous problem, and it is the, the tip of the iceberg, because the problem is, is we're now in debt $1.7 trillion, to an education that's building a bunch of young people that think that I, at five years old I should be able to choose whether I'm a boy or a girl. Well, what you're seeing here is that a lot of Christians are going to have to wake up and realize that there's certain professions that are going to be closed to us. And this is a hard thing. That's for hard to hear, but you're right. Yeah. Uh, but this is what happened to Jews who were persecuted in medieval Europe by, by Christians. They weren't allowed to come into certain professions. And now it's our turn. Um, my, 
I have three kids. One is about to finish college. He's going into museum work. I fear for him that he's going to get canceled. My other two, uh, my middle son wants to uh, go to trade school because he's interested in auto mechanics. Had great grades, would have done well in college and wants to be a mechanic. My first thought was, oh man, are you sure you don't want to go to college? My second thought was, thank you, Lord, that Praise he's going Jesus. to trade school. Yes. Because you... Nobody wants to cancel the mechanic, and my daughter, smart. Well, they might uncancel them the minute their car breaks down. You're like, yeah, okay, we canceled, my, my but yeah. My daughter's probably the smartest of all my kids. She wants to become a baker. She, she's passionate about baking. She's going to culinary school. So I'm in the weird position of being a college graduate who is grateful that two of his three kids aren't going to college because they'll be able to practice unless... Nora, my daughter, makes wedding cakes. They'll be able to practice their, uh, their faith and, and, and their livelihood. But this is, this is something that we're just gonna have to get used to as, as Christians, and we need to start building alternatives so more and more of our kids can have an economy that they can work in and they can feed their families without having to violate their consciences. Sadly, Darren, I have to tell you, my, my middle son, Lucas, he's a... Um, he would have been a great soldier. He was thinking about the military for a while, and I said, well, why do you want to go to the military? He said, well, I want to gain honor. I want to have adventure. I want to experience camaraderie and serve my country. This is what happens when you raise a kid in a classical Christian school and he reads the Iliad. <laughs> and I said, well, Luke, if you do that, I'll be, I'll be proud of you. Your dad will support you. But I want you to think about what... what what you're going to do. I don't trust our government not to send you into some stupid war that we don't have any business fighting. And what I wanted to say to him too, and I did put it to him later, is that being in Eastern Europe and hearing, seeing what our government is doing to those countries over there, forcing gender ideology down the throats of those Christian countries, and in Africa, it's disgusting. Yeah. And Lucas is a Christian, and I didn't want him to, be, to have to go fight to, to queer Eastern Europe. Secondly, I told him, I don't want you to have to choose between obeying your conscience and obeying your commanding officer as the military is getting woke. Well, he decided he didn't want to go on the military, and I was really uh, grateful for that. But I felt really weird. I'm a conservative. I'm from the South. We're supposed to be in favor of this. But the great awakening and my loss of faith in our government has uh, pushed me to that position. Our daughter um, spent almost four years in the Navy. And it was, uh, it was a hard four years because the Navy that she joined was not the Navy that my grandfather served in. Uh, inclusion officers that would follow them around to make sure that, and the definition of inclusion was insanity. Yeah. Darren, yeah, and you know what? In the Soviet, in the Red Army, they had what was called commissars. They were political officers attached to every battalion or every group in the military to make sure everybody stayed in line with Soviet political doctrine. That's what these inclusion officers are doing now. They are DEI commissars. This is the sort of thing that the people who came to this country are seeing and like Americans wake up. Yeah. And it's like, and I, and I, I don't know everybody, I know a lot of y'all, but it might make you feel uncomfortable that we're talking about it because can't we just go back to our lives? You know, can't we just, Go along to get along. No, no, you can't be winsome. The day of winsomeness, time of winsomeness is over. This, there's a guy, Aaron Wren. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's an evangelical 
really interesting thinker. He has this model uh, of the three worlds of evangelicalism. He says there was positive world, which is when uh, it was the past, like in the 50s, 60s, when to be a Christian was something seen as good. There was neutral world, which came in around 1994, where being a Christian wasn't necessarily a good thing, but it wasn't a bad thing, thing either. Then around 2014, we went into negative world, where being a faithful Christian is considered something bad that's gonna cost, cost you. Aaron Wren says so many um, evangelicals today, and he's an evangelical himself, and you could say the same thing about the Catholic Church too. Uh, so many evangelicals today want desperately to believe that we're still in positive or neutral world. In fact, you're in negative world, and if you don't realize that, you're gonna end up not defending yourself and not laying the sort of groundwork internally and within your church community for resilience, and you'll find a way to talk yourself in, to rationalize accepting things that you should never accept, yeah. all for the sake of staying winsome and not driving people away. I was naive enough, and if you've been around this church for long enough, you might remember the season where I had this idea that if I could present the idea with a very intellectually tenable manner and very well thought out, and that, that I could actually maybe have a conversation, right? and I wasted probably four years of my life on that because at some point I had to realize that there was a very large population that I was trying to reach that wasn't looking for a conversation. They wanted capitulation. It wasn't, it was like, I thought, well, you didn't hear me. I'll explain it again. I'm like, oh, no, no, we heard you the first time. We just don't like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and it was like, what I realized I was trying to do was trying to logic somebody out of a problem they didn't logic themselves into. And it was a waste of, of, of energy and, and time. And, you know, as a pastor, you know, you, you of course, want to do our best to communicate truth and, and to communicate in love and all of those th things. And at the same time, recognizing, you know, two weeks ago, um, I was just, I was, I was probably, I thought was one of the least controversial things I've ever said, which is if you are trying to design your life based on your, your feelings, I feel like I'm this. And then you know, I was using the example of uh, Demi Lovato, who had felt like, uh, they, them, and then she felt like a she, her, and it was the next year, and, uh, and I was just making a comment about that that's, if we're going by feelings, that's just how it goes, and you had people that stormed out and, you know, out in the, like, out the back door that will never go back there again, and with like, a very- these charts, they left when you said- I think they didn't know where they were, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, 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 You know, I feel like they might have just, they might have been, they just drove by, but I- um, <laughs> I thought this was Arby's. <laughs> But what was sad was it wasn't that controversial of a thing. No, and, no. you know, I'm, a I'm like the nicest guy I know. Like, I, you know, I'm not a mean guy, but... No, but, the, but that's, that's the thing that we have to get used to, and that is a really difficult thing. We think, we Christians think that if we say these things in love and really mean it, not just faking it, but really mean that I care about you, but here's the truth, we think that that's going to win them over. But a lot of folks, as you say, they don't want... They don't want conversation, they want capitulation. And if you don't capitulate, then you're history's greatest monster and they're gonna find a way to hurt you. And uh, for me, I, and I, I, can, I can have a hot temper about this sort of thing, um, but I've, I'm having to struggle myself and, uh, to not hate those who persecute me and people like me because they are lost too. 
you know, and Christ came for them too. And that is gonna be, I think, a big challenge for us because a lot of conservative Christians I know, people like me, you know, we sort of, what do they call it? Like uh, anger porn or something, not literally pornography. Outrage but, porn, yeah. You, know, you, you outrage porn, you, you go on TikTok and you read libs of TikTok or, and on and on and Just on. Just doom and, scroll, yeah. Yeah, doom scroll, yeah. And, and that's, that's a, a particular temptation I have. We've got to keep ourselves, and I'm talking to myself most of all here, we've got to keep ourselves balanced and to realize that the world remains sunlit despite its vices. And we have, we've got to be awake and, and alert and ready to combat these things, but we also have to realize that uh, God loves the world. He yeah. does, and, and I'll tell you, and maybe, look, I, I'll be the first to say that this may not be, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong about this. It's like God has a lot of work he's been doing on me, and maybe we just haven't got to turn the other cheek yet. Like, there's just so many other things. We'll eventually get to that. But when the traveling that we've done, in fact, we were just in Uganda, and if uh, we were talking about this before, but the country of China has been in, economically invading Africa for the last 10 years right under our noses. And what's happening is you've got Chinese companies that are getting Chinese money from Chinese banks that are being loaned to them from Uganda, uh, Kenya, Sudan, the whole thing. And they treat the workers there, I mean, horribly. Like, it's awful. And last month we were there and uh, I dropped the team off at the hotel. I went to get some cash and there was a young uh, Chinese guy there and he had his mask on and he had his hat and he, and he had this stick and he's got like 200 Ugandan guys and he's like smacking one of them with it because he wasn't doing any, you know, so I had my driver stop and I'm realizing he, I mean, this, what, this wasn't brave. The guy was like this tall, but I was like, I, I got out and I was like, man, do you speak English to, to this Chinese guy? And, and he, he spoke pretty good English. And I was like, I, I just need you to hear me say this. That if, I, if I see you do that again, I'm gonna shove that stick so far up your rear end, it's gonna come out your mouth. And I promise you, every one of these guys, they're gonna call me if you do that again. Um, I 100% don't know whether that was godly. Muscular Christianity. But, but well, I'm just a, so here's the thing, I'm a white trash kid, which is a hillbilly without the romance. But we, there, there's a point where I'm angry at this enough to, how do I say this? I'll say it, I'll say how my counselor says it. Righteous anger is actually healthy anger, which is passion. Okay. And passion makes you want to change something. I'm, I'm, glad you said, I'm glad you said that because what I want to see happen is more fathers and mothers to get angry at what the state, what the schools, yes. what big business, what the media is doing yeah. to our children. You know, we're, we're the mama bears and the papa bears. If you realize what's happening, and like I remember last summer, I was in Hungary on a fellowship. I went in to meet the family minister. There they have a, a part of the government, they have a family minister. And uh, it was just part of the fellowship to meet dignitaries. And she, she was late and she apologized when she came in. She said, I'm so sorry, but we just met with the prime minister and uh, he was telling us that we're going to introduce in two days to parliament a law that will forbid the broadcast of LGBT uh, propaganda to children and minors and none of this in schools. And it's gonna be controversial, so he was preparing us for it. And I said to her, oh, uh, Ms. Novak, have you heard about the Blues Clues Pride Parade? She said, what? 
I explained to her that Blue's Clues was uh, a famous TV show for pre-kindergarten kids in America. Oh, yeah. My kids watched it we growing up. wore it out at my house, yeah. Yeah, but it, it got real woke in, in recent years, and I told her, and she was sitting there with all her staffers, about how they had a, an animated drag queen singing a marching song for all the different kinds of families. They had an image of a beaver in a family who had scars for her breast had been removed. This is for pre-kindergarten kids. All these people, and this is a minister of state in Hungary, none of the people there on her staff had fallen off the turnip truck. They could not believe what I was telling them. Then I sent them a link to the clip. People in that part of the world are still sane. They think we have lost our minds. And they want to know, why won't you stand up and protect your children? They do it in Hungary, and Hungary pays a price for it, too, in the EU. But they say that, what choice do we have? These are our kids. So we spent the first kind of hour talking about the problems, identifying it. And it could feel overwhelming, but I do want to say, like, there are solutions in front of us. There are things that we can do. Fort Riley, Kansas, which is where, I mean, I, my grandfather was a doctor on a military base in Fort Riley, Kansas. A teacher was recently fired for uh, not using the preferred pronouns of a fourth grader and won a $95,000 judgment the teacher did from the school system because they were unjustly fired. Like, there are things we can do, and I want to be, I, from my perspective, there's a difference between anger and rage. Rage is fear, and God is not the author of fear. He didn't give you a spirit of fear. So if you're in a place where you're screaming and you're out of control, just know that's not anger, that's fear. But anger is passion, like healthy. It was the passion of the Christ. Christ was passionate for uh, anger for us. Focus it, make it, channel it constructively. Look at what happened in Northern Virginia a year or so ago when those parents got so sick of their kids' schools being ruined by progressive activists and teachers and a progressive school board that they got involved and they turned those people out and they, they won an election. But one thing that that frustrates me is, I, first of all, I think that we absolutely have to be involved in politics. Hold our leaders' feet to the fire, because especially Republicans, so many Republicans. Yes, especially. Yeah, and I say this as a conservative. I'm a registered mm -hmm. independent because I got sick of the Republican Party, but I almost always vote Republican. Hold their feet to the fire. They're happy to take the votes of people like us, but when it comes down to it, in the end, they don't want to offend the donor class. I remember, Darren, back in 2015, it was right after, a few months after Obergefell, I was invited to give a talk about my book, The Benedict Option, to a Christian group on Capitol Hill, a group of uh, prominent staffers from the House and the Senate side. Then I went to a private luncheon with some of them, and I, I was with all a bunch of Republicans, again, Christians, and I said, okay, our side lost the Obergefell marriage issue. But um, what are y'all gonna do? What legislation do you have planned to protect, strengthen religious liberty in the face of a Obergefell? Silence. I thought maybe they hadn't understood me. I repeated it. They looked all uncomfortable. And one of them finally said, well, we don't have any plans for that. And I, I walked out of the meeting when it was over thinking we Christians really are on our own because these Republicans won't stand up for us. A year later, Donald Trump came along and the equation changed a little bit. But um, I, I think that the point I wanna make though is it's important to be involved politically, 
but don't think that's, that voting is where it ends. Right. You have got to do all kinds of things to prepare your kids. First of all, get your kids off of smartphones. You're gonna have to fight with them. You're gonna, and I've had to do this myself, but that, I, when I talk to teachers um, and counselors in schools, they say that is number one, the worst problem. This is where the kids are being fed all the transgender stuff, and this is where they're getting a lot of porn. You know, you've got to get on top of that. You've got to read to the kids like Camilla Bendova did. You've got to show, you can't just tell them stay away from this. You've got to show them what is good and, and help them to learn to love the good. Mm -hmm. It sounds very abstract to put it that way, but if we think that we've done enough just to vote Republican, we're fooling ourselves. Right. Yeah, I mean, I'm old enough to remember voting a lot and thinking, wait a minute, I thought we'd, we'd voted differently than this, but they're spending exactly as much money as the last group spent, and yeah. just as irresponsible and just as silent. And, 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 in, and in fairness to us as Jesus people, we sort of view the church, we, we view Christianity, like we're the, the hope of the world. And so we've sort of, uh, and I say sort of, like probably very much in, in our community, uh, just forgot about the school board. You know, for yeah. years I voted for school board and I had no idea who I was voting for. Right, right. Those days are long gone, I might add. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you I'm can't. wide awake. I'm putting signs in my yard. Like, I'm, you know what I mean? Like, I know what's going on now because, and, and, and I know, look, the, the, you know, there are bloggers and, and you know, Twitter jockeys that, you know, they're, they're Christian nationalism, whatever they're, they're pejorative they're using for it. And, and it, but if you mean, if, if by Christian nationalism they mean Christians, working for our nation, then by God, Christian nationalism it is. I don't know what you want to call yeah, yeah, it, yeah. but us being involved is not a bad thing, and it's for sure naive of us to, especially in a government where we're invited to be involved in it, right? We're invited, sure. we have an opportunity to be involved. Why wouldn't we? We have the right, as long as we have the right to, to govern ourselves, we've got to exercise it, because we may not always have it, but we've got to at least go down fighting. Um, and I, I think that this is something that we, you cannot afford to be apolitical anymore. Now, some people read uh, my book, The Benedict Option, and thought I was saying, head for the hills. I did. I thought you had the right uh, problem and the wrong solution is what I thought. Yeah. But then I realized I wasn't reading yeah, it. Yeah, right? well, pe people, people who actually read the book know that I'm saying that we Christians... <laughs> that... You know, we have to be in the world. Jeremiah 29, uh, we have to live between Jeremiah 29 and the early part of Daniel. As you mentioned, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they served the king, but yes. they, they knew in the end that when the king asked them or commanded them to do something that they couldn't do, they were prepared to die rather than uh, abandon God. Well, you have to ask ourselves, how did they live, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so that even as they served the king, they knew who the real king was. You know what I mean? And that's yeah. what we have to do. And we can only do that if we, we live by much greater spiritual discipline than many of us do today. In one of uh, the, the chapters in your book, you talked about Father Kolakovich. Kol Kolakovich. And part of the book where he says that he knew that clericalism, passivity of, of traditional Slovak Catholicism would be no match for communism. One thing he saw, he correctly saw, was that the communists would try to control the church by subduing the clergy. And for another, he understood the spiritual trials awaiting believers that were coming. This guy was like a Catholic prophet, right? Put them to the test. But he, this is what he preached. The charismatic 
pastor preached that only a life, a total life commitment to Christ would enable them to withstand the coming trial. And as a church family, we have to, I 100% believe that if I'm trying to live a total life commitment to politics, it will not bear the weight of what's coming. If I'm living a total life commitment to my career, it's not going to bear it. But a total life commitment to Christ, it can withstand what's coming. And you know, Darren, we need to feed ourselves, we in the church, on the stories, the glorious stories, the victorious stories of the martyrs and the confessors. Mm -hmm. As an Eastern Orthodox Christian, these things are an active part of our spirituality. We talk about the martyrs of the early church all throughout to the Bolshevik era and, and things that are happening even today. I tell a story and live not by lies that, man, I, I get a chill when I think about this. The guy, it was first told to me by the man it happened to, a guy named Alexander Ogorodnikov. Ogorodnikov is maybe 70, 71 today. He told it to me in the Hotel Metropole in Moscow when I was there doing research. Ogorodnikov had come from a prominent communist family, and he found Jesus when he was 21, 22. And he left the communist party and started preaching. He began to hold Bible studies and prayer sessions at his apartment in Moscow, and he began to attract other young people who were disillusioned with communism. Well, he knew that his days were numbered. The KGB was watching him, um, and eventually they arrested him. They put him on trial, and even though he didn't have a death sentence, they put him on death row with the worst criminals in all of Russia because they wanted to make an example of a communist kid gone bad. So what did he do when he got to death row? He began to evangelize. And he began to convert so many of these death row prisoners that the warden put him in solitary confinement and began to beat him. He still to this day has a face partially paralyzed from those beatings. Well, Lokorodnikov told me that in solitary confinement, he began to despair. He began to wonder, Lord, why did you bring me here? What good is, is my being here? I don't understand it. One night he was awakened by an angel that showed him uh, a man, a vision of a man, a prisoner, walking with guards on either side, walking from behind with his hands cuffed behind him, walking to his execution. Ogorodnikov couldn't figure out why he had seen that. This began to happen night after night. Finally, Ogorodnikov understood he was being shown men he had witnessed to who had accepted Christ. These were condemned men who were going to be killed because they had murdered, but they were in heaven with the Lord because Ogorodnikov had been in that prison to share the gospel with them. And that's when he knew, I see, Lord, that's why you have me here. It's stories like that, Darren, that are going to get us through this because God will not let anything bad happen to us without his purpose in it. Our task is simply to ask, how do we meet this moment as Christians? How do we find the courage to present Christ in whatever way is necessary for this moment? To hear stories like what Ogorodnikov um, uh, experienced, gosh, it's so powerful. Yeah, and a reminder for us that God is big enough for us today in this moment as well. And the courage of men and women that, I, that are represented in this room uh, in the last two years, I wish you, I wish we had all night so I could share mo- yeah. so many of their stories here that took risk. I mean, you've got men and women in here that have companies with large numbers of employees that spoke truth. That they're to you. And when you do that, you're not just taking a risk just for your family. You're taking a risk for everybody's family because if they're trying to cancel you, they're canceling the whole company. They're sure. canceling people's jobs. There's a, 
There are people in this community that were willing and are willing to suffer for truth. I would say, and by the way, we're, if you want to get the microphones, we're going to open up for any questions that you guys have, because I know I've been asking them all. Um, but when we think about the cost in front of us right now, we have teachers in this room who have to make a decision every day according to their conscience. Am I going to, you know, what do I call, what pronoun do I call this, this you know, 10-year-old boy who thinks he's a girl? I mean, look, when I was eight years old, I wanted to have a chimpanzee, a semi, and fight crime. Like, it sounded completely reasonable. You know, that's how I identified. And it's, I don't mean to, like, be glib, but that's, the, when you're eight, what do you know when you're eight, right. right? But what do you do, as a teacher, your conscience, what, what, what do you do with with that, how do you survive in that world where uh, you own a for-profit company, you are a Christian with Christian values, someone violates them, they're, they're unemployed because of the violation of the... And it's like the, the, the Christians on Twitter that are going after it. And I just like, I want to drive down to their house. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, yeah. we have real problems in this world. And that's what you want to tweet about? You know, I... A lot of people ask me, they say, this is my situation, what should I do? And I can't tell people because I'm just, I'm just the guy on the internet and the guy with a book. I don't know what your life is like. I don't want to tell you, well, this actually happened in Poland. When I was in Poland doing interviews for the book, I, I talked to a couple of Polish men who uh, work for a West, the Polish branch of a Western multinational. And they said, look, we're Catholics. You know, we're tolerant of LGBT folks in the office, but our company is now expecting us to affirm it. You know, and we can't do that because of our conscience. What should we do? I said, listen, I'm just here visiting from America. I can't give you glib advice and go back home and to my, the safety of my job working for a conservative magazine. What I can tell you is that you need to talk to your pastor, talk to people in your life who you consider to be wise, talk to your spouses about it, pray about it, and make a decision. Because we, we can't be expected to fall down on the first sword we see. We, but we have to sort of be prudent and be wise here, and we need to figure out where is that line. Because if we keep, if we keep pushing the line farther, before you know it, we're totally compromised. Mm -hmm. But if we have our kids... Uh, depending on us. This happened to me back in 2008. I had a, a, an argument with a guy, a, a very woke guy in my newsroom at the Dallas Morning News. And I ended up withdrawing something I had written because it, it made me so angry. But I knew this guy was uh, a person of color and a liberal. And there's no way that a white conservative uh, could go up against a black liberal with the human rights, uh, human rights, human resources department at the Dallas Morning News and prevail. I could not destroy my career over, this was a really small thing. I would have stood up if it had been a bigger thing, but I had to make a prudent decision there and maybe I'd made the cowardly one, but I think I made the correct one in that, in that yeah. particular case. And there, there is a dependence on the Holy Spirit in those moments. When we were, when we were navigating the pandemic policies, we would constantly, okay, which battle are we going to choose this week? Which battle? We'll choose this one, but we'll back off on this one. But we, it was all about the, the greater picture. And there was, I don't know, there were th some things I look back, I wish we'd have done it differently. Some things I look back and think I'm 100% no regrets about the way we made these decisions. Uh, and it was the Holy Spirit. We literally, I mean, it was like a daily thing, whiteboard and prayer. 
but, but this is too where, where a small group, an accountability group comes in t- into play. People, men and women, you know you can trust, who, yes. will t- who will speak truthfully to you, and who will have your back. If you suffer for your convictions, you won't suffer alone. You'll be, they'll help you shoulder that burden. Bro, I'm telling you, you just, like, that is the story of this church for the last, well, 12 years, but two years. Like, when I'm reading the stories about pastors that are, like, uh, burning out, and, like, I feel so much empathy, but I don't relate at all because I'm surrounded by men and women that are courageous. And I did not do this alone. We made these decisions together. This is the kind of church that's going to make it. And this is the first time I've come to your church. I'm not trying to flatter you. But from what you're telling me, this is the kind of church that's going to make it. Because it sounds like it's a community of purpose and a community that is prepared to suffer for the gospel and to help each other suffer. Yeah. One of our unofficial, thank you, by the way, but one of our unofficial slogans, we've actually got a t-shirt somewhere, is uh, we're not screwing around, is on the back of the t-shirt. Who, um, <laughs> questions from anybody here? I've asked all, the, I mean, I've got a lot more if you don't, but just raise your hand and we'll have a microphone come to you. While we're waiting, um, I can tell you the end of the Ogorodnikov story. Ogorodnikov couldn't figure out why the Lord hadn't let him see the faces of the men, the condemned men. A year or so later, he was in a small prison. The, the communists kept moving him around. He was in a small prison uh, in a rural area. He was the only inmate there. And at night, they sent an elderly retired guard to guard him. On one of his first nights, a guard came to him, banging on the cell in the middle of the night. He said, help me, help me, help me. Okaradikov said, what is it? The guard said, they come at night, they come at night. It's like, what do you mean, they come at night? The old man told him that when he was younger in the Stalin era, he had been present when the KGB took about 50 Orthodox priests out into the woods. They lined them up in two rows. They went, the KGB man went to the first one, put a pistol to the forehead of the priest and said, do you believe in God? Priest said, yes. Guy fires. The brains of that priest splattered onto the face of the priest behind him. KGB man put the gun to his head. Do you believe in God? Yes. Same thing. Every one of those priests were killed. Not one of them denied God. They died as martyrs. This old man, who was a young guard when he witnessed all this, it haunted him all his life, the faces of those priests as they sat there watching their executioner coming closer to them and killing them. Ogorodnikov is telling me this story, and he started to sob in that luxury hotel in Moscow, and he said, I knew then why the Lord had not let me see the faces of those condemned men. It would have broken me. But you think about that. I, as far as I know, the story of those 50 priests was never recorded anywhere. All of those men went to their deaths as martyrs, refusing, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to deny God. That's the kind of, cur- I hope to God that never happens to us, but I hope to God also that if I'm ever put in that position, I have the courage of all of those priests. Amen. CJ? Okay. Um, trying to organize my thoughts so I, I'm, so I don't stand in a place of trying to become preachy. Um, Point one, um, the, how you talked about the parents 
being responsible for teaching the children. Parents controlling for the good of their children, not for making robots out of them just like them, but establishing parameters that teach them godliness. Can, could we talk more about wisdom in that point, both from your view as, as seeing it as a writer, and then Darren, if you could address it as how we can handle it as a church, and you know, in being in this family that we're in, and how that can better shape out, because we know that probably if we took a, sh a show of hands on those of us who really do have a decent control or a decent awareness of how much our, our kids truly spend time-wise looking at that blessed phone and learning from it rather than from us, we'd probably be pretty ashamed of ourselves. And I'm not married anymore, and I had kids, but when I had them, I can certainly say that I dropped the ball myself during my time of having a family. So if you could speak to that, please. Ron. Yeah, well, I, I would just say, as somebody who's raised kids too and who wishes I had taken a harder line sometimes, um, I think that my wife and I realized that we, it's not enough to tell them no, you have to give them something to say yes to. So one of the things we would do is we would watch movies with them. We would subscribe to uh, Amazon Prime and Netflix, but we would choose good movies, quality movies, old movies, and watch it with them and talk to the kids about it. We didn't want them to feel like they were like in the house without a Christmas tree where they, they couldn't do anything. Um, but I, so our kids, people were often, uh, off, who didn't know us would, and who didn't understand how we raised them would think that they were just these sheltered, deprived little, uh, little orphans. But in fact, they didn't have the Disney Channel, they didn't have all this crap TV that, um, that so many other kids have. And people were wondering, well, why are, why are these drear kids able to have adult conversations and to look adults in the eye and speak respectfully? It's because of the way, what, what we kept from them and what we showed them, what we introduced them to. So uh, I, I think that that's the key thing, because so many parents think that if we just need to keep them away from this, you gotta give them something positive to look forward to. Also, one of the things that my parents didn't have to worry about because it was a very different media environment was what we were gonna get into at the homes of our friends. Uh, that is no longer operative. And you have to be really, really careful as a parent to try to make sure your, friend, your kids' friends are, come from homes where you have an understanding with the parent and y'all are on the same page in terms of media. This is incredibly hard to do. But I was reading something on, on, uh, on Twitter just yesterday from a pagan mother. She is a pagan. And she said that she saved her daughter from the transgender cult by um, one of the things she did, she took her daughter's phone away from her and she refused to let her daughter go over to the homes of anybody whose parents she didn't know. Because uh, this is a woman who's a feminist, but she doesn't want her daughter conquered by these people. And I thought, man, she's hardcore. We have to do the same thing. Yeah, and CJ, I wish I could. Uh, I wish I could speak from a place of like we crushed it. Um, but I can speak from a place as parents that 
uh, our faith is not in how good of a job we did as parents, but how good of a God we serve and that loves our children more than we do. And so my three of mine are grown. Um, and lots of prayers, lots of, like lots of parents, like well, lots of prayers for, for God to bring people across their paths, you know, the trust in the seeds that they were planted while simultaneously, like, you know, why am I, you know, why are you so mad, you know, about this stuff? Because, because at a time when I thought we were trying to be winsome, we didn't want to offend anybody, there was an entire movement in culture and education that uh, was 100% not planned by any of those rules with our children. And um, as far as parents now, like if I were to look back, I don't know, I mean, we would, I, it's like I want as many of us as adults as possible working in public schools, counselors and teachers, and I want as many of our children as possible out of those public schools. Uh, because outsourcing it to a 24-year-old art teacher who just graduated from Woke University with my 17-year-old, I can't afford to do that anymore. You know, I will drive Uber or Lyft or I rake leaves to get pay for my son's education in a Christian school. Now, we can't afford that. I can't afford not to do that right now. So th that's where we are. And again, I wish I had a great playbook to say other than we're trusting a good God that loves our kids more than we do. And by the way, I've got a son that's actually really smart. He used to, uh, the, the one upside that, uh, that social, he found himself in the Jordan Peterson hole of TikTok. So I was like, all right, we're, <laughs> we're good there. <laughs> He'd come, Dad, that guy just got owned by Jordan Peterson. <laughs> Over here, we get time for probably three or four, so. So what was the motivation for your research in uh, former Soviet Union? So I hear a lot of the stories, you know, different parts of Soviet right. Union. Well, the, the idea for the book came uh, in first in 2015, I think it was, 2014, 2015. I got a call from an, a doctor at the Mayo Clinic here in America who said, uh, he got in touch with me through a mutual friend. He said, I want to tell some journalist about what just happened with my mother. He said, my mother uh, is very old. She lives here with me and my wife but she was born and raised in Czechoslovakia. And she spent um, six years in prison in the 1950s for being a Vatican spy. What that meant was the government told her to quit going to prayer meetings at church and she refused, so they put her in prison and tortured her. And uh, when she got out of prison, she immigrated to America and she spent most of her life here. And she said, son, the things I'm seeing happen now in America remind me of what things were like when communism first came to my country. Well, I thought that was really exaggerated. You know, my mom is old and watches a lot of cable news and is freaked out about everything, too. So I called a... Uh, <laughs> Does she know my dad, by the way? Oh, God. <laughs> and, uh, up. I, I, I ended up contacting uh, a Hungarian professor I knew in, in England at uh, Trinity College, Cambridge. Uh, Bela and his wife had escaped from communism in Hungary. I called Bela and said, listen, I trust you. This is what the Czech woman said. Is there anything to it? And Bela said, oh, absolutely. He said, my wife and I are sitting here in our retirement every day watching the BBC, reading the papers, thinking this country is starting to look more and more like what we left behind. So I, knowing that I could trust him, I said, there's a story here. And I, whenever I would go to a conference or something and meet somebody who had grown up in the Soviet Union and came here or grew up in one of the communist countries of Eastern Europe, 
I would just ask them, are the things you're seeing here in America, does it remind you of what you left behind? Every single one of these people said yes. And if you talk to them long enough, they would get so angry that no American would believe them. And, uh, and that's when I, you know, not only in this book, the Live Not By Lies book, the uh, first half is I talk about how what's happening here is like what happened under communism and how it's different. But the second half of the book is about me going to Russia and going to these, uh, many of these other countries and talking to those who didn't leave but who rather stayed behind and asking them, what advice can you give us for how to resist, resist this if it comes to us? Anybody else? Hi. Um, my husband and I moved here um, to Tennessee from Los Angeles about two years ago. So we're refugees. Um, and the first time I picked your book up, I actually um, had to put it down because it was too hard, having moved from Los Angeles, California to Middle Tennessee, to read what you were writing because I had just spent my entire life in a slow like decay of everything I believed in. And we actually brought our seven children here so we could finally breathe and get back to living the way that we had always intended to live. Um, what I've been really struck by in Tennessee is when I share stories of what it's like in Pasadena, California, people are always like, no, <laughs> that can't possibly be true. Wow. And um, the number of, for example, men walking around in women's clothing, the number of homosexual couples with many children, you know, so many things that just are so contrary to the way I'm raising my children, and yet you have to kind of accept and get along, because what are you going to do? You're going to be at odds with all of your neighbors. Um, but since moving here, I've been struck by how I have so much like latent um, anger that I was forced to kind of become less and muted the longer I lived in Los Angeles. And I'm just wondering, what do you think is the best approach when you encounter, obviously if you encounter an activist who's you know, all for transgender rights, that's kind of a bright line, but the average person who maybe doesn't know or the average person who's maybe sympathetic to extreme positions on the left, um, my sense is to be a little bit stronger than I was in California, like no, absolutely not, I do not agree. Um, when I have conversations here in Tennessee with other mothers, they seem pretty shocked by that position. They said, well, you have to have empathy. You have to understand. You have to encourage. What is your sense in having those personal conversations? You know, it's hard for me to have those conversations in part because I'm kind of a known quantity now. And people, if they want to talk about it with me, they either want to say they agree with me or they want to yell about it. And so I don't really have many of the kinds of encounters you're talking about, but I'm encouraged by the fact that you're willing to take a strong stand because this is a difficult thing to do. Um, we all want to be nice and get along. I'm, I'm a nice guy. I just want to go to the party and get along with people. But we, we don't have that. That's not given to us in many places now. So I, I, I feel that you have to take a stand, and there are, and, 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 but you don't have to do it in an angry way necessarily, but it sounds like you've you're probably got a pretty good handle on it. But uh, try to help parents understand why, where that empathy leads, where the, that, you know, that sentiment, was it Walker Percy, the writer Walker Percy, who said that sentimentality will lead to the gas chamber, which is a pretty shocking thing to say, but his point was simply that, that if you take it, if you... 
If you're afraid to speak truth because you want to be nice, eventually those who don't have those same sort of scruples, who are willing to power right over you to get their way, they're going to win. And what we saw in that very first poll, we have time for one more question, was that 70% of progressive leftism uh, religion, they're very willing to speak their and less than 30% of Amer uh, Christians were. So, so they were very willing to be strong. And anyone that's been on Twitter lately knows that they're, they're very willing to be loud with it. And uh, us being at least, you know, tr truth and love are not incompatible goals. Like right. th these are not incongruent with each other. And one of the things that I'm so grateful for, you, you Californians, right? Welcome to the free state of Tennessee, man. We're glad you're here. One of the things that, that you're here that's been helpful for us is you've seen where it can go. Uh, you're like the ghost of Christmas future for us. Well, you're, you're like these, the people who came here from the communist world. You have yeah. a, particular, um, a particular responsibility to testify to what you've escaped and to help people understand how it came to take your state over so it doesn't happen here because eventually you're going to run out of places to go. One more question. I remember you talking about the a priest who went in and warned everyone and um, got them prepared so they could weather the storm. What were the uh, spiritual disciplines that he was teaching them so that they were ready um, when that's, things That's a down? great question. That is a great question. And you should yeah. buy the book because it's like chapter five. No, I'm sorry. He, he, <laughs> he taught I did them, read the book, by the way. Sorry. <laughs> he taught them a method called See, Judge, Act. Um, and uh, of course, they would come together for prayer and Bible study. But when they would talk about the situation going on, uh, the whole see part of it was for them all to talk about what they were seeing in their society around them, ways that they could see uh, totalitarianism starting to form or challenges to the gospel, challenges to, to religious liberty, that sort of thing. Judge, the judge part was to make critical judgments about this. Is this something that we need to act on now, or is it something we should, it would be more prudent to wait uh, on this? Uh, and then finally, uh, between judge and act, they would decide what we need to go out and do about it. And then they would leave the room with act on their minds, the concrete things they were going to do to prepare. This was the method they used every time they got together to meet, and they, whether they were talking about big things or small things. But they always would collaborate together to talk about this. No holds barred. Say whatever you're seeing. And, uh, and people would criticize them. But they were trying to work out what we as a community could do. And then go out into the world and not just be a debating society, but be a society that will act. And they did things as practical as learning how to withstand interrogations without betraying your comrades, betraying the other people in church. I mean, that's the sort of thing that I hope we never get to here, but they were doing it because as the vice got tighter and tighter and tighter, they began to see that this is, these were things they were going to have to do. I can see us as Christians having to do things like establish an underground railroad for families trying to save their children from being seized by the state yes. and uh, for the gender cult. Did you see the piece Abigail Schreier wrote? Yes. Abigail Schreier is just fantastic. Yes, She's add her to your list, yes. Now, Orthodox Jewish woman out in L.A., she wrote a piece about a Muslim father in Oregon or Washington whose autistic son, 14 years old, 
they took him to a psychiatrist or something. The psychiatrist said, your son is actually your daughter. You will be taking him to the gender clinic, won't you? Well, the Muslim father was savvy enough to realize what was being said to him there, and he also realized that, uh, the kid was 15, that at the age of 15 in his state, the state could seize the kid from the parents and start with the hormones. Yes. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's happening in California, in Florida. There's an Ecuadorian mother in uh, San Diego. Her, her daughter was taken away from her by DCS and being given puberty-blocking drugs. And she, and she, it might have been an Abigail Schreier piece as well. This mother's just sobbing. She came to this country for freedom, yep. and her child was taken away because she wasn't celebrating her gender transition. Right. Well, what, so what the, the Muslim father did, he said, yes, ma'am, well, we're going to take him there next week. Sold the house, got the family out Good of the state. Good for him. Yeah. Uh, look, our houses are open for that. You, yeah, we you need come to, across that stuff, we got basements and guest rooms here. And we need to start doing things like getting these networks in place right now while we have the freedom. I want to say, I know we're wrapping up, but um, if you get Live Not By Lies, uh, you can go to my Twitter uh, account, at Rod Dreer, and there is a free download, a link for a free downloadable study guide for your church and youth groups, things like that, that I wrote that gives you study questions for each chapter to help spark these See Judge Act conversations. Yeah, I love that because that's, so we, we just got fire hosed with information and I assure you we could go for a lot longer. But don't let this be the end of it if this is your first awareness of it. Uh, continue to learn, but also don't walk out just pissed off and don't do anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, in, the thing is, is you get you, something like this is so angry and I, I don't know what to do, so the tendency is just not do anything. And that's not, that's not what we, we, that's not the right answer. No, no, no. We've got to, we've got, our rage could be impotent. If all we do is get mad, then what good is that? Mm-hmm. figure out what activists in other parts of the country, like Northern Virginia, are, are doing, and mimic them. Or, or start networking, start reading people like Chris Rufo, R-U-F-O. If you're not following Christopher Rufo on social media or his website, you need to start doing it now. That guy yeah. is probably the most important activist of his kind since Phyllis Schlafly. Yeah. Uh, he is on top of critical race theory, he's on top of transgender. Um, just keep yourself informed and realize that you cannot trust the media. I've been in the media for th- over 30 years. You can't trust them. I remember, Darren, I gotta say this before we go. Back in 2004, 2005, I was at the Dallas Morning News on the editorial board, and I knew we were gonna have to start talking about same-sex marriage. It, we knew it was coming, and I knew that most of my colleagues were liberal, but I felt like I needed to you know, put up a good fight for the traditional marriage side. I went to a guy, a colleague of mine, a really nice guy, a guy who's my friend, 35 years old, Republican, Catholic, I was a Catholic then, and I said, hey, you know, we need, I need to put you on my side so we can make this argument. He said, oh, I'm against what you believe. I'm in favor of same-sex marriage. I said, but what about what the catechism says? What about what the Bible says? He said, nobody tells me what to believe, so that's where he was. Finally, we started arguing about this, and I said to him, I said, but can't you see that our newspaper is completely unfair? We only report on you know, pro-LGBT things. We never report on what the church says unless it's to criticize. He said, well, if we were in the civil rights era, do you think we ought to give the Ku Klux Klan equal time? 
He called his own church the equivalent of the KKK. And now we know. Where this is 2004, yeah. 2005. Wow. Yeah, so this is where we are. Stand to your feet. I want to pray over you and get you out of here. And as we're standing, actually, that reminds me of something I want to say, which is legacy media especially right now, their business model is 100% based on getting you to click on something. You don't click, they don't get paid. Okay? And when they're aiming pieces right now on Christian leaders across America, and it's happening everywhere, you have to consider the source. We've got to be wise, right? Wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And one of the greatest, I think one of the greatest places and ways that we can do that is when we see that happening to our leaders to A, not jump in with the Twitter mob with our pitchforks and our torches, but to take a step back, pray for whoever that is, and then take a stand with them because they're eventually coming for you. So wouldn't it be better for us to A, just consider the source of where it's coming from and know that you're not, I'll say that in this church, we are not gonna let a legacy media company tell us what the narrative is of what the truth is because in the last decade, especially if they've proven anything, is that they don't know the truth. They have a narrative and we're not following a narrative. So pray, prayerfully consider it. Living not by lies also means not living by whatever you just saw posted on social media just because Christianity Today posted it doesn't mean it's true. So I want to pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us insight wisdom, courage, and peace. Lord, I'm thankful for my brother, Rod, that I don't know what he thought he was writing, but he wrote maybe one of the most important books in this modern era. It's a field guide for all of us. And I pray that as we leave here tonight that you will fill our hearts with courage, fill our minds with ideas, and fill our, uh, just our lives with love and truth. We're not going to go out there fighting and raging, but we're going to go out and fight with love and with truth and with courage. It's in your name, Christ, that we pray. It's only because of you, Jesus, that we can pray at all. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Would you give Rod a hand? Thank you guys for being here.